the United States of America, home of the brave. A place that is filled with different cultures, diversity, beautiful scenery, a place I call home. But one thing many people may not know about the USA is the artisans, craftsmen, and women, photographers, musicians, creatives, makers of all sorts that come with this beautiful country. Many people tend to buy products from major online retailers that they forget about the make that is happening right here in America. From the Industrial Revolution and even prior to that time period, America has continued to build its economy through makers, and there are thousands of them. America has makers that forge steel to make knives and axes, sew skirts, hats, and handbags with materials of all sorts, paint and capture visuals that are forever in your home and carried in your heart, share stories through music and writings, make special treats and refreshing beverages, and much more. Join me through the journey through the lives of makers across our country to hear how they get down with their craft. I'm Kristen Vermeule, and this is Makers of the USA. According to the Baltimore Sun, in the United States between the 1730s and the 1830s, turns up 58 different references to the banjo, and 57 of those citations describe the instrument as being played by Black Americans. Much of that activity was right here in Maryland, when Pete Ross, a banjo maker, researcher, and musician who lives in Baltimore, put each of those 58 references on a map now hanging on a museum wall as a part of the Baltimore Museum of Industry, a plurality were clustered around the Chesapeake Bay, while the others were widely scattered about the eastern United States. The instrument those early musicians played looked quite different from today's banjos. The bodies were made from large, hollow gourds with one side sliced off and covered with an animal hide. The necks were long sticks, usually rounded in Africa and flattened in the Caribbean. By the Civil War, slightly more than three decades later, most bandos built in America looked very much like the instrument we know today. A large, backless tambourine for the body and a guitar-like neck. How, where, and why did this sudden transition take place? Well, I sit down with Pete to hear more about this topic. I mean, who knew that the early banjos looked and sounded differently than the ones we typically hear about today? Pete has excelled in the early banjo building craft. In 2010, he received a Maryland State Arts Council Apprenticeship Award to study techniques of the late 19th century banjo construction with master luthier Kevin Nock. He has lectured on banjo history and taught banjo construction and performance at the Baltimore Civil War Museum. And I even got to hear him and his partner, Kristen, perform inside his lovely home in Baltimore. It was quite the treat. And man, what a unique experience. I loved hearing about the history of this beautiful banjo. I love getting to know Pete and really how he has turned into this renowned banjo maker. I mean, I had no idea this existed in Baltimore. And I am so, so honored I got to sit down with him to chat about this. Now, let's get to it. Let's talk craft with Pete Ross. All right, everyone, we are on to the next maker of the Makers of the USA Maryland series with Pete Ross. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk your craft. Um, and I'm not going to tell the audience what your craft is because that's my first question I'm going to ask you. So what is your craft and what inspired you to start it? I am a banjo builder. I build banjos initially from the 18th and even 17th century 
but now I, I've, I've moved on to making them all right to the end of the 19th century in style too, but I continue to make the earliest ones as well. Wow. And what inspired me? I mean, how complicated do you want me to answer this <laughs> is the question. Like, you could be as complicated as you want. I mean, basically, you know, I was always like a record store hound since I was in elementary school. And so I started working in record stores and I worked at weird little indie stores. Cause yeah. Cause I buy like underground music there. Cool. Back in the eighties. And yeah. And but those stores often had like a strong kind of roots music component as well. And by chance, I heard a recording that had been a field recording of a fiddle and banjo player made in the like 40 or 41. And I just put it on because well, I didn't keep something playing in the store. Right. And I wasn't really paying attention because it was busy. And then like a few songs in, I was like, man, what is this? This is <laughs> fantastic. And and I had heard bluegrass and stuff like that before, right. but this didn't sound at all like that. Huh. It was like way more acerbic and emotionally direct. Really? And had a coarseness to it that probably appealed to my ears because of all this sort of harsh underground music I'd listened to. And, but the other thing that was interesting to me about it was that they were both African-American musicians. Huh. And I didn't really know what it was. And it had been just sort of filed in the blues section. Yeah. Whoever filed it didn't know either. And, you know, I knew there were some customers in the store who were really into like sort of 78 collecting and really early roots music collecting. And right. so I played it for one of them and he's like, yeah, it's pretty good. And I was trying to get a feel for what it was. He didn't say much. And then he came into the store like a few weeks later, a few weeks later. And he says, Hey Pete, you still listen to that country music? I was like, is that what that is? Like, I didn't really know because wow. it didn't quite sound like anything I'd heard. Yeah. So that just, it's sort of the idea of African-Americans playing this music that I always thought was like kind of the most cracker-fied music out there right. was a revelation. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just curious and I started reading more about the history of that music and then the instruments specifically. And I found out that the, the banjo itself was an African-American instrument originally. And... There wasn't much in there wasn't much good evidence of the early instrument, and I found out pretty quickly, at least at that point, it seemed that none from that earliest period of its history had survived. Right, and I was just so driven to learn more about it. I realized to hear one play, I had to make it myself. Right, so that's what got me started. On Interesting. It. Yeah. And I, you just learned it by yourself. So was well, there initially. Any, oh, initially. Okay. Yeah. Initially, you know, I quickly met other people that are interested in this history mm -hmm. and corresponded with them. We had to mail stuff back and forth. I, I, I met one guy, my friend Clark, uh, who was living in Arkansas at the time, and he had been building them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was pre-internet, so you just right. didn't, couldn't really figure out who else was doing it. And it was yeah. they hadn't risen to view yet. Mm -hmm. And... Then I was traveling in the country and I knew I was going to be in Mississippi to beat my then girlfriend's uh, grandparents. Yeah. And Clark says, well, while you're in Jackson, you should go meet uh, Scott Didlake. He's been working on this and he has a lot of the same ideas you do about it. And oh, cool. Plus, he is dying of Luke Eric's disease. Oh, my and gosh. He, so I called him up and he invited me over. He says, as soon as you're in town, give me a holler. Yeah. And I went over and I had some of the instruments I've been building already. And he basically asked me to be his apprentice, you know, while he still had time left to pass wow. on what he had That's learned. amazing. Yeah. And wow. so that was my first sort of apprenticeship in this stuff. My goodness. Yeah. Now, 
before you got into the apprenticeship, did you just learn sort of the elementary skills through books and just history? And you yeah, went off that? that's what I. Yeah, I. Well, it, it's a mix of a sort of skill building and and trying to figure out how what the internet actually was. Right. Because, you know, let's face it, you know, African-American material culture in this 17th, 18th and 19th century, like there's no folklorists. Right. It's treated pretty dismissively by the white people. Mm -hmm. And so the records were poor. Yeah. So I basically had to assemble written records that had survived and and some of the images and initially went and looked at some of the West African instruments that are similar and sort of reverse engineered the earliest surviving banjos, which is from the, the first period in which white people took up the instrument. Wow. And sort of pieced it together that way mm -hmm. and and simultaneously built skills. I was, I was, first of all, my first kind of real job, and I started as a volunteer even when I was in my early teens, was with the Maryland Parks Department. Really? Yeah, there was, wow. and there was a, there was a, it was a nature center and where, you know, you go and see the local snakes and stuff right and tanks and, but they also had a recreation of an 1830s farm there hmm. so that, that was enough to it wasn't fine tools but they'd be like all right pete you got to go make like 300 shingles for the roof of this farm building out of wood today Jeez. so i would you know what you know just stuff <laughs> yeah. like that like so yeah i'd sit down on a shave horse with a draw knife and just knock wow it out. so so that was enough to sort of get over any initial fear I might have had. Like, well, you know, I just jumped in and did that, so right. I might as well give this a shot. And I was I was in art school in New York at the time, and you know, I started making the banjos and or got interested in it. So I just went and used they had like wood shop tools in the sculpture building. Jeez. So I just went in there and just, just did it. Started doing it. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. so, are you originally from Maryland? I am. Well, I lived in Washington D.C. till I was about two. Nice. And moved out to the suburbs after that. Nice. And you said Wheaton, right? I think. Yeah, I grew up in Wheaton, Aspen Hill, Wheaton. Yeah. High school graduate. Nice. And then, so you stayed out there up into um, high school, and then you went off to New York yep. to go to school. Basically. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, so then you let's go back to the apprenticeship. So uh -huh. this gentleman that um. Please uh, remind me. Okay. Scott did like. Scott yeah. did like. Okay. Yeah. So what's his background? Like, why was he just, why was he the guy when it came to this craft? Well, he was, he was sort of in the same place I was in that he didn't, he didn't learn this through sort of like, like a folk process. It wasn't passed on to him. Yeah. But he got really interested in history in the same way I did. Mm -hmm. he, he was around some of, some kind of roots music as a young guy he played like banjo ukulele i think when he was a kid wow. and then he took up up to up to strip this down a little bit That's he he took up you know five string more modern style banjo later and in his life and then he he got exposed to this history too and had the same reaction i did mm -hmm. which was like well we got to sort this out right and he studied with a local banjo maker there around jackson mississippi oh wow yeah and just started the, the same goal as me. His, his goal was a little different initially. He, you know, to use my phrase, I've always felt it was sort of a cultural injustice that this piece of our of our musical heritage, yeah. generally for the America, mm -hmm. had been abandoned and sort of willfully abandoned in many cases. Right. African-American roots. So I felt a need to bring that back. Mm -hmm. He felt the same thing. The slight difference in our our thinking was I wanted to really get the instruments as they were known circa right. 1800. He wanted to, 
he he was interested in that, but he also wanted to create an instrument that was usable in a modern context. Really? Yeah. So he he made the gourd body banjos, but they also had things like plastic heads, like a modern banjo, and mm. um, they would be tuned to a modern pitch as a as opposed to sort of a much lower mid 19th century or earlier pitches. Oh, wow. Yeah. So with your, as you were doing your apprenticeship and spending time with him, mm-hmm. what were a couple of key things that you took out of that experience? Um, number one is just better and improve my tool work. Yeah. Um, he'd really refined his, his use of hand tools and stuff like that. Took it to a level I hadn't yet. Wow. So Did I he make from, his own hand tools? No, no. He was using sort of like mid to late 19th century, like hand planes, oh, um, wow. things like that. Okay. So we did, aside from the initial cuts with a bandsaw, everything else was all hand tools. Gotcha. Um, he, he had some design stuff that was, that were his own concepts, mm-hmm. which I've considered continued to work from for some yeah. of my instruments mm-hmm. and really the th- the thing that was brilliant was his way of figuring out how to uh, I'm, I'm a little bit lost how to s- describe it verbally which is basically plan your cuts to to join the wooden neck to the gourd body hmm. which is really tricky because the geometry is really unpredictable yeah i can only imagine yeah because every gourd's different so right you can't just say uh, i'm cutting a square hole like i do every other time yeah i'm gonna put it in the spot and it'll all lay out perfectly right he just had figured out a brilliant way of just like bam you can do it every time right and even when i've broken away from his specific sort of banjo model Mm -hmm. i i continue to use that method right because it's so useful yeah yeah i'm sure so i know you touch on more of course traditional banjos did you learn more about that skill set with him you mentioned like the gourd instruments like the more vintage banjos right was he more of a expert in that field compared to like traditional banjo (laughs) or modern i don't know Use the word traditional is like really fraught in America, right? Right. So, right. Um, he yes, he he made exclusively gourd bodied banjos. Gotcha. But that's also what I had been making right before gotcha. I met him. He improved that skill set. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so did you? Kind of are you continuing that now through your your yeah. practice? Okay. I still am, and that's still most of what I make, even though I make wooden rim banjos now right. as well. So, what's the difference? I mean, <laughs> um, the main difference is is the body right. of the instrument. You know, right. the, it's a gourd sound chamber with a skin head over top, mm-hmm. and that form of making musical instruments is found f- kind of throughout the old world, sort of south and east of of northern Europe. So wow, we have. Basically, sort of, they're not actually gourd body, but there's like wooden bowl bodied instruments mm-hmm. with a piece of skin tacked over the top and then a neck and strings over that. Yeah. That are found in the pyramids, you right. know? So it goes way back. And so throughout Africa, throughout the Near East, um, South Asia, right. and Asia, you'll see all kinds of instruments where it's often a gourd body, a piece of skin over the top of it. So let me explain that. Like you look at a guitar or violin and the, what we call the soundboard mm-hmm. is the flat piece on top of a guitar, the mm-hmm. big flat piece of wood, a bridge rests on that. The strings pass over that. 
when you strum the string, it vibrates the bridge, which then vibrates the wooden soundboard, which amplifies it, creates the tone, creates the volume. Right. In these instruments, instead of that flat piece of wood, you have a bridge resting on a piece of skin. Hmm. And that's what vibrates. So, you know, if you just pluck a guitar string, you'll even it's held between pretty really right. as tight, you wouldn't right. really hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to pass over the bridge. And what makes the volume is the soundboard. Hmm. These are instruments that have a skin soundboard. Right. So you you look at a modern banjo, one made since the 1930s, mm -hmm. and you'll know right away that's, that surface is white. Right. So nowadays you look at it, it's a piece of plastic. Mm -hmm. right? And the rest of the instrument is highly industrialized looking, like there's tons of cast and machine pieces of metal all right. over it. So what those things are were, so let me say this first, that plastic soundboard is a modern replacement for this what had been skin before okay and and all the band the, the banjo we think of most people think of is like just a highly industrialized version right of these gourd bodied instruments mm -hmm. i could see that yeah okay yeah because when i look at the images particularly on your website and just sort of um the history it just seemed like it's um it's something you would see in like a native american community in terms of like <laughs> right. the instrumentals so mm -hmm. it's really interesting like give me some examples of musicians you have worked with or maybe band members you have worked with or whomever um that you've built banjos for like particularly the gourd style well the the most sort of well-known guy who really got into this stuff was Mike Seeger, was Pete Seeger's younger brother. And mm. and he was more of a straight-up folklorist in his approach to it. He had the same sort of politics as Pete, but yeah. he was interested in the old music and the history of it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he he purchased a gourd banjo for me. I'd actually hadn't made it for him. I'd made it for an exhibit in a um, museum in New York, Katona Art Museum. And, wow. And, you know, they bought it for me and it went back up for sale and he... he he bought it you know, wow. right oh away. Goodness. And then, you know, we got to know each other pretty well. And and then he has since passed, but he he passed on to Rhiannon Giddens, who has it now. Oh, wow. So so you you know exactly where these where pieces go <laughs> Some of to. them. Some of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, not a lot of them. But, really? Yeah. So um, do you typically stay in touch with um, those you've done pieces for? If, if, like, let's say it just needs more maintenance work or something? No, I, I, not for that reason. Mm -hmm. You know, some people stay in touch because... They're they're really deep into the history, right? And also, you know, you, you meet some people, and they're still they're they're also kind of mission driven in their approach to this. Like, we need to like correct this history, this is, right? And so, those are the people I tend to sort of talk with regular, even after they come to possess something, because right. they're like, oh, I saw you found a new piece of research, or yeah, I saw you on this thing, or I saw you did this performance. Is us talking back and forth, yeah, and you know, we'll sort of continue to share ideas, right? But no, there's not. People don't get back to me because of maintenance. It hasn't yeah. been an issue yet, thankfully. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't know how fragile these pieces were. They can be fragile. I, I have, I've repaired a couple that Scott, who I pressed with, made, and they, one was annihilated while it was being shipped. Actually, the really? last one he made. Oh, but I managed to put it all back together. Well, good. And then Tony Trishka owns one he made. He's a He's a well, pretty well known banjo player, and mm -hmm. and he it got, I guess between gigs he had it up in the luggage compartment in the airplane. Somebody else came after him and just like oh, no. smashed their 
and smash their suitcase into it. But I was oh. I was able to fix that too. So. Oh, good. Yeah. That's good. It's yeah. It's it's mishap, not like de- deterioration. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you happen to have any challenges along the way when you um, maybe in the beginning of crafting the banjos or maybe new projects or new, you know, types of styled banjos that you're not very familiar with? I mean, I'm sure there have been like ebbs and flows in this journey, right? Yeah. I mean, the main challenge is just, you know, I'm constantly wanting to improve. Right. And and you as you as your skills improve, you're more demanding on yourself. You know, so stuff I might have let go or not noticed 10 years ago, like, boy, now it's like the, yeah. the gnashing of teeth and cursing and, <laughs> and stuff that goes on in the workshop. Right. You know, I mean, when it's a challenge, because I mean, I like the challenges when somebody comes to me with sort of a historical or aesthetic concept. Right. I enjoy that, you know, because mm-hmm. it's. I don't want to be a factory, you know, I, 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 there are sort of standard models that people see some, you know, local musician, Brad Claudner is uh, here has gotten to be pretty well known and he plays one and he sounds fantastic on it. Great. People hear it and they want, they want one like that, Yeah, which is great. You know, yeah, I know how to make it Yeah, and I can crank them out and, you know, right. keep food on the table here. Right. But, um, you know, I guess recently it was, one that was fun recently was the um, Prime video that did the the adaptation of Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. Oh, oh yeah. They came to me and wanted a banjo for it. And, oh, cool. And and it was fun working with them because they obviously they cared about the history, and I was able to talk over with them like, you know, this is where it's going to be set. You know, so. I was able to tell them what would be appropriate historically, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it's sort of a, a fantasy version of history. Right. So there's some flexibility in there. So I, I made an instrument based on a circa 1800 image, but I altered it number one to, to make it more, more easily playable by a modern day musician. And number two, I was able to incorporate some of the spiritual imagery used um, by African-Americans at that time and place Wow! that my girlfriend Christina is now writing a book on the strong connection between the banjo and those spiritual practices huh. um, starting in, again, the, the late 17th up to the early, earliest 19th century. Oh, my goodness. So we could, um, because she had the research material around the house, I was able right. to pull up some of this imagery and put that on. Oh, that's so cool. On the banjo. And also, you know, it was fun to like, you know, make it look like a banjo had been around for a while. Right. Sort of worn out and yeah. stuff's enjoyable for me. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm so curious as to what the spirituality side of it is. Well, you got to get Christina's book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I mean, when you say spirituality, is it more of like how banjos were used back in those times for specific means I for guess? specific spiritual practices gotcha gotcha yeah. okay i don't want to i don't want to i know i know i was just my girlfriend's curious. book <laughs> i know well i'll have well, we'll to keep in touch about it 2022 so oh good yeah, okay well, well i'll have the, to um, title. Yeah. oh nice yeah. all right i'll put the title in the notes section of the podcast and <laughs> yeah. hopefully i can uh, get folks to wait and can you pre-order it not yet okay not yet well we'll wait then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm excited to read it yeah. So what has been the most unique project that you've worked on? Hmm. 
I don't, I don't know what the, what's the most unique. I mean, I'm constantly doing new stuff. I mean, right. it's always new stuff. Now, you know, I, I learned later the 19th, late 19th century era of building to another, another apprenticeship. And at that point in the band's history, it becomes sort of a high Victorian um, art project. Mm-hmm. Um, or high Victorian, highly, vic- highly decorated object in Victorian times. So right. tons of carving and mother of pearl and things like that. Mm-hmm. So what's happening now is people ordering the gourd banjos. They'll go to my website. They'll see this sort of Victorian banjos right. and, and ask me, well, can you apply some of that stuff to my gourd banjo? And what, so what we mm-hmm. have is people that are like, they just like the tonality of the early instrument. Right. And they, and they're not necessarily approaching it as doing strictly a strictly historical repertoire. Mm-hmm. So they're also, their aesthetics are like, well, can you like inlay some of that in this? And oh, cool. so that that's, it's a challenge for me because my aesthetics are very important to me. So at first it's a clash to me. Like yeah. I don't want to mix those worlds up and they feel too different aesthetically. But I'm, I'm coming around. I'm trying. I'm finding a way to make it to right. make it work. Do you think uh, you'll ever say no? Oh, I say no all the time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's I, I, you know I, I don't. It's not a flat out no. I'm not going to make this banjo for you. But I'm like, right. well, can we work with this idea? Yeah. To to um come up with something we're both happy with and mm-hmm. and you know put some. Let me. You're, you've come to me because you appreciate what I do. Let me let me take your idea. And work it out, and I'll get yeah. back to you. And you know, there's often long email exchanges where I just, you know, scan drawings and send it back to them for things like right. that. Right. So what you typically do is you sketch it out, really. Yeah. And kind yeah, of too. going through the kind of the custom storytelling process of like what exactly <laughs> they want. Right. right? I just you know? I want to understand right. you know, what they want and yeah. why. Does it take a while to do that? Yeah, it takes a while. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. And then from there, what do you do? So do you go purchase the raw materials and then you kind of just start crafting? Um, Yeah, I'm sure the steps take very they're very timely. right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it um, it sort of depends how custom they want to make it. Like a lot of things I have sort of like a standard set of dimensions and I have templates all worked out. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people want no, I want a different scale length, you know, a different size. And then I got to, or I want this part to be wider than typical. And, and, oh, wow. Or, and so I really have to start from scratch in the design process. Jeez. That way. Um, but that's not too often. Lately, I've had a run of that. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows why? But uh, yeah. it's okay. I mean, I sort of enjoy that too. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell them, like, look, this is going to take a lot more time in the shop. Right. And, you know, I got to charge you for that. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes um, sense. Um, most of the materials I have on hand, and I do, like, couple excursions a year to go buy more gourds buy more wood right things like that yeah mail order you know stuff that is manufactured locally right right and i'm so do you typically get um your materials from overseas most of the time no no mostly here oh wow um i spent a lot of time in pennsylvania because wow there are lumber yards with good wood there Mm -hmm. large ones several of them and there are several farms in Amish country, that these Amish guys specialize in growing gourds. Right, right. So well, that's that the main game. Yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah, so I could just go through and pick them out. Um, you know, of course, don't want to bring up COVID times, but, you know, it's the <laughs> day that we're living in right now. 
would you find that your prices are scaling up due to the the materials, lack of materials? Because I heard wood when it comes to like renovating a home and stuff like it, you know, it's you know, so pricey. I haven't experienced that yet. Well, that's good. But, you know, the, the hardwood for for instruments is already kind of, you know, you're not you're not framing a wall with this. Stuff, right. Right. <laughs> right. That's true. That is very true. Yeah, It's already pretty kind of pricey. Yeah. You know? But man, I can't remember if I've done a. I, I buy a lot at a time, and I, I can't remember if I've done a, a lumber run since COVID. Oh, really? I've done some gourd runs, and I don't know, that's, they're pretty. I'm like, a country man. They're just right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how connected they are. Like <laughs> we grew it; it didn't cost us more this year than it did last year. Well, good. So, that's yeah. really good to hear because yeah. I think that it's nice to understand rel- like relevant times, like current times of like what's yeah. going on. And I was just curious because I was like, I've been hearing all these like yeah. prices and materials rising, and I'm like, oh. yeah. I mean, there are difficulties caused. It's not by COVID, but you know, so in the once you get to about the bandage made after about 1845, like mm-hmm. I was saying, like they, they get the wooden rim and then they have a lot of metal parts. It was a guy right here in Baltimore who was the, the first guy to, he's really the first commercial banjo maker. Really? And he, he adapted drum hardware to tightening the head. So if you look gotcha. at the gourd ones, you, know, you put the skin on wet and you mm-hmm. tack it on, it dries, pulls itself tight. Right. So starting the eight, starting the 1830s, people start using them. White people start taking it up and using it in performance and in, in minstrel shows. Right. And they, which we shouldn't let that go on pass too quickly because you know it was seen as an African American instrument. These shows, you know, white guys put on blackface and lampooned black culture, black mm-hmm. people, and the banjo took off an in interest among white people as a prop as as a minstrel show prop as another thing that was emblematic of black culture that was interesting used to kind of you know another way to mock them in right. a way. but then people got virtuosic on it anyway because people do they take it and they sort of forget why they took it up and or didn't but in one way they, they people start playing it seriously mm-hmm. but at that point there was a boom in manufacture that followed this kind of pop culture fra- um, mm-hmm. craze and the guy in baltimore added he was already selling drums and all sorts of instruments. He had a large commercial uh, music shop. Yeah. And uh, he he applied drum hardware, like sort of on a snare drum. To, instead of just tacking on that head, it would pull the head tight. The advantage there is no matter what the weather, you can always keep it appropriately tight. So mm-hmm. the, the skin on a banjo is, on an early banjo, is subject to sort of like atmospheric humidity so it'll, right. if, it gets, if it's damp out it'll start sagging it won't sound as good it won't be as loud right. so this that's that's fine if you're like well i'm just sort of playing this for my own use or for this occasion right but suddenly it's like you're a performing musician you're on tour you have to be on stage at this time yeah you got it's got to work when it's got to work that's true so that so what i was getting at is in the <laughs> so throughout the 19th century when they use more and more of this hardware mm-hmm. any town in america of medium to large size city, there's going to be like multiple foundries and and machine shops, right. metal works and stuff, and that's mostly gone now. It's, yeah, so it that's is. a real challenge. Yeah, I'm sure to find those parts, and I cannot do that. Yeah, in my little Baltimore totally row makes house. Sense. Yeah. yeah, so that's what's and now they're sort of artisanal metal workers who make this stuff. Right, now. right, so, yeah. and I'm sure that's pretty costly because yeah, it gets costly. Yeah, there's not many around in the states, so yeah. it's probably you either go cheaper, you know, yeah. going outside the country, or yeah. you stay within your roots here in the states. So yeah, I stay I mostly stay in the states. I get some. 
some tuners from out of the country, but that's like either Germany or Japan. Oh, they just yeah. make them really well. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I have friends or colleagues now who, who that's become sort of their main gig is making vintage style banjo parts. Wow. Yeah. Who knew that even yeah, existed? <laughs> that's Niche. crazy. Yes, yeah. very. But you know, it seems like that instrument, as you mentioned, it's um, definitely become more popular and trendy yeah. in terms of the yeah, music totally. world. Yeah. And um, so, you know, what has been really something that you have learned along the journey? Like, let's say there's somebody who wants to be a banjo maker, like beginner, very beginner, and right. wants to take it on. What would you share with them of sort of lessons learned along the way? I mean, I would just say just just jump into it mm -hmm. and and do it because that's i mean <laughs> i don't think that's very profound but it's worked for me yeah and i would say learn the history right and and you number one you're gonna expose if you the more you expose yourself to other instruments that's mm -hmm. the place to learn right, like right. what has worked in the past yeah and you develop an aesthetic you know what is pleasing to your eye as well these things got to make music but right. there also should be objects of beauty that you want to have around you in your life exactly you know because once you get into sort of artisanal made instruments they're going to be expensive and you right. you you have to you have to that's got to be an important factor in them. Mm -hmm. and and don't forget to honor the older history i mean i feel like with the complexities in this country's history we we always have to honor that stuff and just make sure it is always at the forefront right you know yeah keep it true to its roots and true, true to its roots right but but also be honest about its roots yeah like right you know it's sort of i mean that's sort of i mean some of the real discoveries for me are not as much about the buildings as much as is about the history and it's sort of mm -hmm. like our notion of you know before the word traditional is sort of fraught in this country it's mm -hmm. like imagine most people know today is not would not meet anybody's definition of traditional because it is so industrialized at this point you right. know and it is so a product of exposure to pop culture yeah you know and sometimes really ugly history too mm -hmm. and i'm sure you can't you can't forget that yeah and yeah. it sounds like the history is pretty ugly because yeah. it sounds like you really have to dig to get to know it because yeah. not a lot of people probably yeah. know of it because it's not like unless you're probably going into jeopardy thinking you're going to be asked <laughs> right. a question about banjos <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but you know i think um no i i've learned so much from this because i feel like there has been a missing piece to this history yeah. and i'm sure that you're super passionate about it, it sounds like your girlfriend's super passionate yeah. about it which yeah. is awesome and um so tell me, where did you start crafting uh, the manjos? Was it in Baltimore? In this no, it was very in New house? York. Oh, it was in New York. That's right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, early yeah. 90s in art school. And then where York. did you go after that? Then I, I moved to Mississippi to study mm -hmm. with Scott. Gotcha. And then where'd you go after that? I came back to Maryland, yeah. um, stayed at my parents' place for about a year, and then basically building up enough funds to have a, my own workshop up here in Baltimore. Wow. So then that's when you just took it and ran with it and started your own business. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But I was all, you know, I was also doing things like washing dishes at the restaurants right. and things like that and to sort of keep myself afloat. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But, you know, boy, that first place I lived in Baltimore, my rent was 150 bucks a month. So. Oh, wow. It was. And that's. Being able to make the banjos was more important to me. So I didn't want right. to have to like work 40 hours a week. And yeah. So I gave like a few banjo lessons and washed dishes here and there. Yeah. And then had the rest of the time in the workshop. That's great. And then yeah. did you play banjo before crafting banjos? Pretty simultaneous. Okay. Taking it, playing it and 
and building them. Okay. Like I, I, you know, I learned to play by listening to records and all, mm -hmm. and I started going to fiddle contests and things like that oh, cool. in like Virginia and North Carolina. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then, so I picked it up that way, but you know, I was, my interest in the history hit me at the same time as like sort of my passion for banjo music did. Right. So I, I immediately f dug up the earliest banjo primers, you know, first started published in the 1850s and and so I started learning that stuff and it was actually more appropriate to play on something that was tuned more in that, you know, it, they didn't have steel strings. They had gut strings. Yeah. They were tuned two whole steps below. Wow. Modern banjo pitch. Yeah. So it was kind of great to have that on hand. That's great. Yeah. 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 Do you find that it's important to know how to play the banjo in order to craft it? Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have I've given some classes at Augusta Heritage Workshops in Elkins, West Virginia, and yeah. where I'm like, you're gonna have a week. We're gonna build a build a banjo in this week, but it's gonna be like a gourd body or a very early style wooden rim body, right? And the most <laughs> the biggest challenge there were a couple students who I don't think they played guitar, a little banjo, <laughs> and so they didn't know which side of the neck was like the right, front. And right. like, this one student says to me, you know, I'm like, all right, you got to round the back. You got to round the neck more. It's got to right. feel comfortable in your hand. You, yeah. you know, keep sticking with it. And then they say to me, like, wait, this is the back of the neck. Nobody's going to even see this part. I put all this work into. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah, I'm like you didn't know. That. Like, right. So, yeah, you got to, you got to. So in the future, when I get the class, I said basic familiarity with right. musical instruments. Is right. Necessary. Right. Oh, I'm sure. Because yeah. I think you would want to teach somebody that has an appreciation. And yeah. I'm sure that goes same with your customers that want to buy a piece from you. Yeah. The appreciation, understanding the history and all yeah. of that, too. Um, I mean, that's the way to be also like, that's the good question. Now, if you ask artists, this is like, what, what's your sort of ideal client? Right. And for me, it's somebody who is really into the history. Mm -hmm. So if they're asking me for for whatever decorative element they have like a library or know to where to look up online to <laughs> right. like here are some images to draw from nice you know and they have like a vetted interest as much as you do in yeah. that process that's great though yeah. and just to sort of something to again just something to draw from not just like you know, you don't walk into the tattoo parlor right. and just like, I, I don't know, I have an idea. It's like, well, you hopefully you've looked at others. And, right, you know, right. Done your research yeah. and didn't. Yeah. And just dug a little bit into what you want. I right. mean, right. if you're spending all that money or even like a tattoo having it permanently on your body, <laughs> right. it's like, OK, you take yeah, the time exactly. to, to learn it. Yeah. And and it's sort of surprising yeah. me that they're not, I don't know, you know, whatever. I end up doing this because my mind works in a certain way anyway. So, yeah. I, you know, I should be understanding that everybody's going to not everybody's going to get as sort of unhealthily obsessed with it as I have. But, <laughs> but you know, that's like, I'm always a little surprised that they haven't like spent the time. Right. But I don't know, some, you know, I don't know, whatever their interest is different. They like they hear an instrument or they see something that was made recently and they right. like, sort of want something like that. So that's true. Then I, I'll often end up sending them reference images. Mm -hmm. You know, let's try to work with. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And what did you study in school? I was a fine arts major. Okay. So my, the main thing I really enjoyed was printmaking. Cool. Which I guess sort of makes sense because it's, it's sort of artisanal in a way, too. Yeah. It's sort of on that cusp between, like, pure fine arts. You know, I'm working right. with tools. Right. There's a process. Yeah. So there's something, there must be something in my wiring that sort of draws me. And that's right. like, even though when I'm just doing non-functional doing non art, mm -hmm. just lithographs and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And how many banjos have you made thus far? I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, my gosh. I mean... I've been at this for 
going on 30 years. Oh my goodness. And yeah, I didn't number any of the stuff yeah. at the beginning. I yeah. was sort of opposed to it. I didn't want to quantify it, but yeah, it's, you know, you know, it's a couple dozen a year, maybe mm -hmm. there ebbs and flows, of course. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. I, I'm sort of afraid to do the math. Yeah. <laughs> and also afraid to see like how I'm afraid to face how right. slow I worked. Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sure you've made a ton. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. And um, do you name the banjos? Like, mean like a person's name? Yeah. Or no, something. No, no. I was just curious. because I, I mean, like, I usually. How do you know, like, you know, which one goes with which person or like. Well, I'll refer to it to, <laughs> by the client's name. Okay. Or sometimes like a dec decorative element or something specific oh, okay. about it. Yeah, just yeah. to sort of help remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just curious because I was yeah. like, how, how does that work? Because I know some people name their products after random names or, you know, <laughs> well, that there's fun. There's like a general like sort of product names like on my website or whatever. Right, right, so right. So I'm thinking of changing but yeah, they're, they're sort of very generalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so is it just banjos that you craft or is there other instruments you I've craft? made some gourd fiddles. Oh, nice. Because there's early records of those. I don't make it, mm. I don't make very many of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're fun and like, the, you know, there's more, there are more surviving gourd fiddles than there are gourd banjos really yeah wow they're about three gourd banjos from like the definitely this was made by an african-american in in the period before the instrument was sort of co-opted by white people there's right. three on earth like, oh my goodness and none of them are in the u.s really yeah in fact none of them were made in the u.s they were made in other areas where there were wow people enslaved in the new world oh my uh, goodness south america and the caribbean and um, wow but there are messes of gourd fiddles, mm -hmm. but we, we, f the provenance is, is sticky. Let me put it that way. Like, mm -hmm. cause I don't want to give away too much, but like we, we basically found where somebody had published plans for them in the early 20th century. Mm. And, um, we think like kids were making them for the heck of it or for basically like a Boy Scout merit badge or something. Right. Some of them could predate that. The person who published the plan said, I learned this from this African-American man yeah and here's the model but now the fact that there's so many around says to me they were probably made a little more recently right by somebody yeah i made that back in seventh grade yeah and, or whatever and so hell on to it i got passed through families more recently mm -hmm. and they they weren't the possession of people who were sort of cast around by the fates and thoroughly dispossessed of everything wow you know yeah the, all the all the african-american banjo gourd banjos that survived were saved by white people who wanted to preserve them for one reason or another right yeah. oh that's so interesting yeah. wow that's yeah. crazy <laughs> I, I can't believe there's only three yeah. out there there's some other old ones out but the the smithsonian just bought one and to me it's it's not from the oldest tradition it, gotcha. it has a the neck is modeled after sort of second half of the 19th century banjo neck that somebody just stuck a gourd on gotcha there's one i haven't examined that's overseas. I haven't made that trip yet. And I'm sure that'll be exciting when you do. Yeah. I've traveled to Europe a couple times now nice. to see them. Christina and I went to Suriname to sort of learn more about the culture there in oh, South wow, America. Oh, wow. Where, where one, two of the earliest banjos were from. Oh, my goodness. And But the one, this other early ones in Japan, which I'd love to visit anyway. Yeah, I'm so, sure. Yeah. yeah. And we took post-COVID for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. So why, you know, have your business here in Maryland? Why continue it in the Baltimore 
area. Um, I know you're not even from the Baltimore area, but right. I know you've been here for a while. So yeah. like you could have went anywhere else. You could have went to Pennsylvania, West Virginia. But so why Maryland? Well, I mean, it's a complicated question, too, because I mean, initially when I was starting out in New York, I was sort of what I discovered was so much of the banders earliest history was in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, the earliest commercial maker was here and many of the earliest accounts of the instrument when it was played by African-Americans are here as well. Right. Around the tobacco plantations. Right. The Eastern Shore and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I was sort of exploring my identity when I was working on this too as somebody from a state that doesn't carry a lot of cultural identity in the minds of the rest of America. That's true. But I was sort of discovering, like, this is a place where this these things happened. Right. It has lost its identity culturally too, but it was a Southern state that, even though it didn't join the Confederacy, the economics here grew around mass forced labor camps growing tobacco here. Right. And it was important to me that that wasn't forgotten either. So Mm -hmm. I started like, how much do I identify with that? Well, not really, but it's also, I didn't grow up in Baltimore, but grew up in Maryland. Yeah. And so that all played in my mind. And, you know, I had spent some time in high school in Baltimore. I'd come up here to see the punk bands and all in the little yeah. crappy little clubs and stuff yeah, and yeah. the abandoned buildings basically. And right. so I got to know the lay of the land and as even though I grew up closer to DC, as DC got in more intensely gentrified, the sort of more blue collar surroundings of Baltimore, just I, I felt more comfortable with it. And yeah. like I said before, you know, it's sort of the perfect place to have sort of to lead that kind of bohemian lifestyle because mm-hmm. you don't have to, devote so much of your lifetime oh yeah your your hours the day to taking care of the basics right you know you can like i said wash dishes a couple nights a week and you have the rest of the time to focus on your art or craft or trade or whatever it is yeah and that was a that was a huge plus for me too and now you know i've lived here i don't know like around 25 years now so can't remember exactly but something like that and uh, (laughs) more than 20 less than 25 in there and uh you know i just love it now that's great awesome well thank you so much for your time it was great chatting with you to learn more about this because like i said i didn't know anything about it (laughs) i've learned so much in just the let's see 45 minutes of your time um so thank you again i know our listeners are going to love this so i will link your website and social media handles in the notes section and uh yeah so hopefully we will get to see more of your work and i can't wait to take some videos of it as well (laughs) great thanks (laughs) thanks nice talking with you Thank you for tuning in to Makers of the USA Maryland series. And thank you to Pete for being on the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Pete's work, I will include more information in the notes section of the podcast. Also, please follow the Makers of the USA on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to see visuals of these wonderful makers that are a part of this series. If you have enjoyed this podcast series thus far, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Facebook. Now for our featured musician is Pete and his partner, Kristen. I hope you enjoy their tune as much as I do. Kristen is a fiddler and of course, Pete is a pro at the banjo. I think you're going to love it. Thank you all again and stay safe and healthy. (laughs) 